Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Jared Wilson, and on today's episode, we are grateful to have with us Matt Boswell. Matt is pastor of ministries and worship leader at Providence Church in Frisco, Texas, and the author of Doxology and Theology, How the Gospel Forms the Worship Leader, as well as a new book we'll discuss here shortly. He is, of course, an accomplished singer and songwriter, having penned some of your church's favorite worship songs, like Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, Your Grace Still Amazes Me, and Beautiful, Wonderful Cross. Matt, uh, were you the one who wrote Lord, I Lift Your Name on High? You know, actually, so I started leading worship in 1995, Uh the year that that song was written. Whoa. And uh, was a part of singing it, but no, not the author. Okay. What about the one about the oil and the lamp? Give me oil for my amp. Did you write that? Also guilty of singing that. Still not the author. (laughs) Okay. Good deal. Matt, thanks for coming on. Tell us a little bit um, about your background. Did you grow up in the church, um, how you came to Christ, and, and your sense of calling to ministry? Yeah, I did. I grew up in the church. Uh, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. My dad is a pastor who is the son of another pastor. And so um, yeah, I grew up in the church my entire life. Uh, I came to faith in Christ. We were actually planting. We left Texas and we're planting a church in Richmond, Virginia, with some of the folks from the Foreign Mission Board at the time. And uh, we were there a few years. And um, through that process, uh, a couple of things. One, uh, Jesus grabbed my heart. Uh, I came to faith in Christ, and uh, we were living with my grandparents because we couldn't afford a house on our own at the beginning of that church plant. And so um, my dad led me to faith in Christ in the upstairs room of my grandparents' house. Uh, And then through that process, also the Lord um, really stirred in me a love for church planting uh, through that process, which was later uh, cultivated. And uh, So even to the point of graduating high school, rather than go right to college, I just wanted to go help help with church plants uh, as the worship leader. So were you a part of the planning team for Providence Church? No, I knew the guy who planted uh, pretty well. Uh, we were a church plant from the village, another church here in Dallas. All right. And um, I actually, so uh, Afshin Ziafat, who's our lead pastor now, came in the fifth year, and then I came in the sixth year. Okay. Very cool. Of, of this. It was still, you know, relatively small church, um, and uh, a sort of a replant, in a sense, uh, that, that we underwent and uh, have been some of the most rewarding and, and fruitful years of, of life and ministry here. Yeah. What's Frisco like? I'm from Texas, but I'm not familiar with uh, with that town. Yeah, Frisco is the epicenter of suburban life. Uh, I mean, it's um, you know booming city. Uh, it's a uh, affluent area. Um it's a lot of shopping and eating and uh, kind of a quintessential Dallas suburb. Hmm. I think it needs a rebranding because when I, when I hear Frisco, I, I just think cowboy for some reason. I'm picturing- yeah, it was. <laughs> you know, it's funny because everything here is new. Um, the town, even going back 20 years, was only a few thousand people, and today is about 170,000. Oh, my. And so everything has been filled. There was, there's no sense of... of um, of historic influence here because everything had you know has been built in the last twenty years. I wonder. I mean, does that have some sort of um, correlation to the spiritual quality of of the town? Is there this sense of uh, a lack of roots or or modernity or, or anything? Does that affect the spiritual climate? You know, I think uh, similar to um, 
other suburbs, there's a transient nature uh, to our church climate. Um, individualism would be a pretty strong value uh, for people because of career paths, you know, taking them from city to city. And so we experience that. You know, most people uh, that are a part of Providence and even living in Frisco are not from here. Almost everyone has moved here from out of state. And so it truly is a melting pot. Um, within that, we've had like an increasing Indian population here in Frisco. Uh, that's been a really interesting thing to see the Lord doing, bringing um, so many Indians here uh, to Texas, specifically to this North Dallas area. And uh, so even 10 minutes ago, I was meeting with a missionary uh, from India talking about uh, what we can do to strategically uh, love on and reach the Indian community here. That's great. How did you discover that you could sing and write? I started um, I started writing songs for the church to sing when I was 15. Uh, that's also the same time that I started leading leading worship. Uh, I was very influenced by Vineyard Music Group. Uh, they were writing songs, you know, very simple songs of devotion and praise, and was very influenced by that. Of course, I was raised in, uh, you know, singing out of the 1975 hymnal, which <laughs> right, is the greatest right. hymnal of all time. And uh, so grew up singing hymns, uh, but then in the mid-90s, very influenced by uh, the Vineyard Music Movement, which, of course, gave birth to Passion and Hillsong and, and the like. Uh, but I started writing hymns very early on, just as an expression of, I think, leadership and wanting to love and serve people in by leading them in song, but something that was uh, unique to what God was doing in our church. And so, in 1995 was the first song that I wrote. Mm-hmm. It included four chords and probably at least eight or ten words. <laughs> Yeah. And then just built from there. You know, that, that's interesting because it was around the same time. I was, it was probably 94, 95, um, where I became somewhat taken with uh, Vineyard Music as well, listening to David Roos and Brian Dirksen and um, Kevin yeah. Prosh and some of those Andy folks. Park. That's yeah. right. That's right. So, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I don't think this would be a, a surprise to anyone to consider this, but it seems like we have been enjoying, when I say we, I, uh, you know, the, the evangelical church has been enjoying this sort of gospel renaissance uh, movement of gospel centrality. With that has come uh, the creation of of culture, of good, rich culture. Um, I think we see it most notably, perhaps in in uh, in nonfiction books. I wish it would kind of bleed into uh, more of the arts, but at least in music, congregational music, anyway. It seems like we've been seeing um, this resurgence of gospel rich theologically strong congregational worship music. And I think one of the most telling signs for that, at least when I was pastoring, is, you know, people would mention that old song or that old hymn, you know, that we sang. What was that old hymn we sang last week? And it turns out that it was a song written two years ago by you or uh, or Michael Bleeker or something like that. Um, you know, so that, I know that's intentional, uh, you know, for those of you guys who are leading us so well doing this, but why do you think We've been enjoying over the last, you know, several years this kind of resurgence in theologically strong congregational worship music. I think with, um, you know, the Young Restless Reform movement, there's there's been so much good that has come out of it. Um, with this entire gospel resurgence that's happened over the last, you know, ten fifteen years, um, I, I think the reason we have 
so many great hymns being written today is because of that movement. I think it's because pastors are heralding from the pulpit uh, the sufficiency of the gospel, uh, the beauty of Christ, um, the inerrancy of Scripture. And so I think you have you have um, hymn writers, you have artists that are that are under great teaching, and therefore you have uh, biblically rich, doctrinally sound, doxological songs being written. And uh, I do think the pulpit is the reason for that, and that's something we don't need to take lightly. And I mean, just need to praise God for. We live in a sweet time of uh, seeing so many amazing hymns being written. Yeah, I'm not in my head over here yet. So, I mean, it's the fruit of discipleship is really what it is, is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, th- you know, in what preachers are doing through uh, prose and through sermons, you know, you have hymn writers doing through poetry. Uh, and you see this beautiful collaboration of work, this division of labor, all with the same uh, end, uh, to see Christ glorified and known and treasured. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. You know, but I think there is something generational about it or at least um, culturally specific about it because the the reason I say that is when you look at sort of the forerunners of, you know, this movement, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, gospel-centered or the, what have you, you know, some of the, you know, the preachers that we, you know, look to, um, that we've been influenced by, um, you know, those who are our age, They've been doing this sort of preaching for the last 30, 40 years. Uh, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, you know, all these guys, they didn't like show up, you know, 10 years ago and and decide, hey, let's do this new glory of God thing. Um, you know, they've been laying the groundwork for quite a long time. And if you go and listen to a John Piper sermon from 20 years ago, it's going to sound very much like the John Piper sermon from last week. Uh, you know, at least in his main concern. So why do you think just in the last sort of you know, few years we've somewhat caught on? Is it, you know, the generational, um, I don't know, you know, aptitude for this sort of thing, or is it just the right moment in our culture? That's an interesting thing. Some of it I, I, I would boil down just to exposure. Um, you know, me growing up in, you know, the 80s and 90s, I, I didn't have any way to know who, a John Piper was, or an R.C. Sproul, outside of a book being written. And so I wasn't able to hear what preaching looked like, or um, with Piper specifically, with like Ask Pastor John. Those things were not um, accessible. And specifically with worship leaders, uh, the case is, is much more uh, bleak, because at least for preachers, you have this beautiful and historic, extensive body of work, right, with, with libraries. But with this role of the worship leader, which has adapted over the last 30 years in substantial ways, um, it wasn't easy for a young guy to get to like get to sit down with Bob Coughlin uh, or Chip Stam. Um, it, it wasn't; those were not accessible. Whereas today, you have uh, resources and um, conferences and books and records and. I mean, the list goes on, of ways that um, younger pastors, younger worship leaders are being equipped. And so I think because of that, there's greater exposure. Uh, but that still doesn't uh, press in on the point of the gospel resurgence piece. And I think that must be attributed just to the work of the Spirit um, in this time. Just the Lord saw this would happen 
in his kindness and providence has has led us to this place. Yeah, I think you're right. Hey, let's take a coffee break here and hear from our host, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. Now, back to the podcast. Hey, um, switching gears just a little bit, what is your personal songwriting process like? What does it look like for um, you, whether with a collaborator or by yourself, um, to compose a song? What does that process look like? Yeah, my process of writing songs is um, I, I'm a curator and a collector first. So um, in every theological book that I'm reading, I'm collecting words, just specific words. Uh, I remember uh, reading Jim Hamilton's Biblical Theology, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. And in it, he just uses the word unassailable six, seven times. And so uh, I just thought that was a beautiful word to write in a hymn. And so just kind of put it in my back pocket, and then when it seems appropriate, throw it in a hymn. (laughs) And so in all reading, I'm collecting words. And then um, even through sermon outlines, um, seeing how how a preacher is moving uh, systematically through a text or through a subject, and allowing some of those things to help shape how I would write a hymn in response to that. Um, and so I'm I'm just always on the lookout for what would be good kindling for uh, a hymn to be written, and just storing those things up. And the, the discipline of writing, so I write about an hour and a half a week is what I have actually set aside. That's Wednesday mornings. I have an hour and a half set aside to actually write. Um, but, you know, it might be after family worship one night. We're still, you know, guitars in my hand, um, fresh thoughts on the mind, and just a, a phrase will uh, come to light and kind of sit in, in a way that I think there's something to that. And so I'll just kind of maybe spend time after the kids go to bed, just spend some time working through that idea. Um, and so songwriting is a very organic kind of like all of life practice for me. Yeah, I'm just trying to keep my antenna up to phrases or thoughts or even a melody line that I think may be um, worthwhile to come back to. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not a songwriter, but, uh, you know, as a writer, it's somewhat similar. I, I like how Stephen King talks about Writing is, in a sense, like archaeology. You're discovering, the you know these things, um, but really it, it has a sense of imagination, I think. So it's not this sort of rote. Uh, you know, I'm going to sit down and think of an idea, but you're capturing things. You see things in the world, on the news, in a book, whatever it is, in a phrase, a word, or a situation. You know, causes you to say, "What if? What if I?" you know, put that into this context, or what if this happened next, or, or what have you. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I just want to find that. Uh, yeah. The guys writing theological works today are, are most helpful for me in doing that. 
So I've tried to encourage some of the guys writing the theology of our day to actually write hymns. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I just think that's a great way for, for their uh, writings and framework to find uh, a portable expression. Yeah. So for you, does the, I mean, do the lyrics come first or the melody or sometimes one or the other? Uh, generally, like with writing for me, I'll have like an opening phrase that'll kind of set the meter of the hymn. Um, and that'll, uh, so generally I'll start with that just one phrase and build a melody from there and then build out an entire melody and then fill in the content. So I learned that from Keith Getty. I would used to write just lyric upon lyric upon lyric. And uh, Keith was like, you're just wasting your time. You've got a lot of lyrics going to waste there. Hmm. And I'm not the smartest guy in the room, so I don't have lyrics to waste. And so I've started working on melodies uh, really extensively before finishing out lyrics. Yeah, And lyric, lyric writing can take months, even years. Matt Papa and I worked on one Advent hymn for about three years oh, uh, before it was done. That doesn't mean we worked on it every day or right. even every month, but uh, we'd come back to it again and again, and then finally it was finished. Oh, that's great. What are some things worship leaders do today that you wish they'd stop doing? Here's a fun question. Yeah. What do worship <laughs> leaders do today I wish they would stop doing? I wish they would uh, stop wearing skinny jeans and scarves <laughs> and drinking lattes. Okay. <laughs> Especially all at the same time. <laughs> all, yeah, all at the same time is just confusing for people. That's right. Um, you know, I think oh, that's a really great question. The one thing that I, uh, I feel the pull to and that I wish worship leaders would stop doing is trusting in um, themselves to manufacture an experience with God for his people and just trust in uh, the sufficiency of his word and in, um, in the power of the spirit um, for people to behold the glory of Christ and to respond appropriately. Because you have these two kind of uh, trajectories away from believing in the sufficiency of uh, God. One would be toward uh, pragmatism, where then I'm trying to like uh, figure out, okay, A plus B plus C always equals D, and therefore I'll I'll sing these songs in a row, and God's people respond this way. Um, and then the other way would be toward this mediatorial kind of per- perception of the worship leader. Like you'll hear phrases like "You really led us to the throne of God today," um, which we understand like that's that's what Christ does. Mm. Uh, that's not the role of the worship leader. So um, I, I think my my response is like, what do I wish worship leaders wouldn't do is one, see themselves as an entertainer uh, or as a mediator, but trust in the completed work of Christ uh, proclaimed in front of his people as sufficient for them to respond in worship. Yeah. Now, I know that's a matter of the heart, but is it is it possible to be specific because I'm thinking of, you know, worship leaders that I've, um, you know, been in congregations under where it seemed to me I would discern that that they're falling into this, um, you know, practice that you're describing. But if you were to ask them, um, they certainly would say, you know, no, of course I'm not trying to, you know, to, you know, to pull a lever and, and, and produce, you know, something in you. I, you know, of course I trust in the Holy Spirit to actually do this work and 
So for those who may be listening wondering, okay, I know I'm not supposed to trust in myself, but, you know, I kind of knew that. What does that look, you know, or what are the questions that we ought to ask at least? Maybe instead of calling out a you know, specific practice, um, what are some questions a worship leader should ask himself or herself um, to make sure that they're actually trusting in the Holy Spirit? I think the heart is the right place to begin. I, I think to say, what what is my heart in this action uh, is a really important question to ask. Uh, because all of our practices can be traced back to what do we believe about God and what do we believe about ourselves? And so why are we acting this way? Or why are we conducting worship this way? And I, I think, you know, I think a lot of it is just theological formation for worship leaders. I think that is the solution for it. Uh, we're, we're, and praise God, more and more, this is the case. I know um, countless guys who... who are serious students of God's Word and um, want to be a, a shepherd and a worship leader in a local church and who, who navigate all of these things beautifully. Uh, but I, I do think the heart is, is the first place to look um, at any one of our practices. You know, it's so, it's so difficult to, to pinpoint because practices vary from congregation to congregation. Um, and honestly, I don't have the the joy of seeing too many worship leaders because I'm, I'm here most Sundays. Um, but I think regardless of what our practices are, to hold them up to the light of God's Word uh, and to see what it says clearly on, on how we should be leading and to test our hearts by those things, I think is a, is a valuable practice. Yeah. Would, would you say style is neutral, that any style of, of, of music can go in a, in a congregational worship setting? Yeah, I, I don't know if style is neutral, um, because I think even just considering um, thinking like a missiologist, um, how is it that the style of this people in song is appropriate? Um, and then how, how can we think rightly through that? Um, but I, I, there are so many styles, I think to commend one style would be, would be short-sighted. Sure. Even my style, you know, I write in one specific kind of mode. Um, kind of in the school of Watts, I would say, like in writing predominantly metrical hymns. But so many great songs are written outside of that style uh, that, you know, we sing here at our church. Now, I, I don't specifically write that way, but praise God for people who do. Uh, and so I think we, with all of our worship practices, need to remember that what we do is one expression, we hope, of biblical faithfulness, uh, even in the style of what we do. But there are so many others that, that need to be taken into consideration and validated. I think that, that keeps our hearts from becoming prideful in saying, my way is the only way. Yeah. No, I think we have um, really a lot of, um, I don't know if flexibility is the word, but you know, certainly the, the diversity and the variety uh, of members of you know, the body of Christ allows for us um, quite a bit of freedom, I think, um, but I think just the very nature that we know that music affects people, you know, in, in certain ways, um, probably commends the idea that there are styles that, you know, or, or you know, ways of presenting music or what have you that um, that affect certain, you know, certain people in certain ways. And, and uh, maybe singing a lament, for instance, in a happy 
uh, you know, jovial tone um, isn't the best style, right? Uh, so not that it would right. be a sinful style of music, but appropriate for the congregational worship time, something like that. Uh, you mentioned Watts, um, I think, a couple of times. Tell me about your latest book. Uh, it's called The Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs of Isaac Watts. Why Isaac Watts? Why should the average pastor um, listening out there care about Isaac Watts? You know, hymns play um, such an indispensable role in in our local churches within our own spirituality. And, you know, Watts stands alone in, um, you know, post-Reformation hymn writers as, you know, historically the father of English hymnody. And so for me, it's been so helpful um, to sit down with him over these years and, and work through this hymnal. And so just a part of my own um, discipleship, uh, I spend a lot of time in old hymnals. I just find them so rich and helpful in, um, in serving to articulate things that I can't on my own. So I'm borrowing language from people in prayer. And, um, so that's been so helpful. Watts... Um, seemed like a great place to start the series just because of his influence uh, on the church throughout the ages from you know from the 18th century on uh, you know beyond just joy to the world and when I survey uh, but his his psalm collections being so rich in poetry um, his ability to point the psalms to Christ he says you know he makes David sing like a Christian <laughs> and what he means by that is kind of the typological um, understanding we would have today. Watts was, was a forerunner in his time of being able to show how Christ uh, is seen in the Psalms. And, uh, you know, Watts specifically, one of his biographers, Douglas Bond, says that uh, through his hymns, his flock his flocks apprehended uh, biblical truth with both mind and spirit. Watts' theology became their theology. His doxology became their doxology. And so I think for a pastor, uh, for the worship leader, uh, that's a noble thing to pray through, that the theology that we hold so dear would be the theology of our people, and that the doxology that we experience would also be our congregation's doxology. So I think Watts is just um, a wonderful place to start in us reprinting these hymns, uh, these hymnals. And uh, I pray it would be helpful, yes, to pastors and worship leaders uh, as they're considering hymns, but even more so just as um, as a devotional tool in people's own spirituality. Yeah, that's great. The Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs of Isaac Watts. Matt, thanks so much, brother. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. We've been speaking with the incomparable Matt Boswell, and I'm sure it was a blessing to you as it was to me. Please take some time, if you will, to visit doxologyandtheology.com and explore all the great resources available there for you and for your ministry. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.